remember where we left off last time on the story, boys and girls? It was the story of the angel coming to Zechariah. And uh, Zechariah was a priest, and he had served the Lord for many years, and he had, it was kind of his lucky day, because his lot was drawn only once in a lifetime would a priest be able to get into the Holy of Holies, to be able to bring the offering, and he brought the offering, and there, at the, at the altar of incense, was an angel, Gabriel, who had come from the very presence of God, and, and, and do you remember, he, he said, um, you and Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. You will have a son. And do you remember his response? Zechariah said, oh, yeah, you know, really, I don't even recall praying that anymore. But my wife is way too old and I'm too old. In fact, she couldn't bear children. And that's, you know, give me a sign. You know, I'll believe if you prove it to me. And the angel was a little bit offended and said again who he was and, 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 and shared with him that and said, I will give you a sign. That sign is that you will be unable to speak. In fact, basically your world would become silent until this baby, John, is born and every word is fulfilled. And he went home and sure enough, Elizabeth got pregnant and she went away for five months into seclusion. Wanted to be in a place, I think, where she could have a kind of like the womb of faith could grow with this child. And during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to the Galilean village of Nazareth to an unmarried girl named Mary. She was engaged to a man named Joseph, a true descendant of David. The angel Gabriel appeared to her with a greeting. Grace to you this morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty. Beautiful inside and out. For the Lord is with you. Mary was deeply troubled by the words of the angel. Thoroughly shaken and confused, she, she wondered what, what was meant by that greeting. But the angel assured her, do not give way to your fear, Mary. For the Lord has found great delight in you and has chosen to surprise you with a wonderful gift. You will become pregnant with a baby boy and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be known as the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will enthrone him as king on his ancestor David's throne. And he will reign as the king of Israel forever. There will be no end ever to his kingdom. Mary said to the angel, but how can I have a baby? I'm not even married yet and I'm still a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Almighty God will hover over you so that the baby born to you will be utterly holy and will be called the Son of God. And did you know that your old aunt Elizabeth has also conceived a son? You know, the one everyone calls the barren one? She's actually six months pregnant. Know this. Not one promise from God is empty of power. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, 
I'm the Lord's servant, and I'm willing to do whatever he wants. May everything you said come true. And then the angel left her. Mary didn't waste a minute. She got up and traveled to a town in the hill country of Judah, where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. Arriving at their home, Mary entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the moment she heard Mary's voice, the baby within Elizabeth's womb leaped and kicked. Elizabeth was filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And with a loud voice, she prophesied with power, Mary, you are favored by God above all other women, and your child is destined to bring great, great praise and delight to God. What an honor that the mother of the Lord should visit me. And the instant I heard your voice when you entered the house to greet me, my baby danced inside me with ecstatic joy. Blessed are you, for you believed every word God said would come true. And Mary said, I'm bursting in my heart with praise to God. I rejoice in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And look what happened. Every generation will call me the most blessed woman on earth. What God has done for me will never be forgotten. The mighty God has done great things for me. His mercy flows in wave after wave on those who are in awe before him. He has flexed his arm and showed his strength, scattering those who walk in self-dependent pride. Tyrants, he knocks off their high horses, and the abused he pulls out of their shame. Those who hunger for him will always be filled while the callous rich he will send away empty-handed. He embraced his chosen child, Israel, because he never forgets. He always remembers to show mercy. That is exactly what he promised, beginning with Abraham and right up to now. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months and then went back to her own home. Should we pray and go to sleep let's pray Father thank you for these stories these unbelievable stories that through Luke who wrote them and researched them and has told us they're believable they're credible Use them, we pray, to teach us more about you and who we are and what it means to serve you. In Christ's name, amen. So last week, someone said, you should just stay on that little you know, chair. Um, I really would love to just kind of now talk to you adults um, here uh, and share with you some of the things that I, I believe are really important to this story because it's important to understand we're looking at the account from the eyes of Luke and you might ask yourself how come there are four different accounts of Jesus' life? Why, why these four Gospels? Uh, one very important reason is in the Old Testament it was if you were to go to a court of law and you were to establish something as, as, as being true and, and so that the evidence would be assured and credible you needed two witnesses. So that's just part of the reason why there's more than one gospel. Uh, but the other reason, I think, is because how God loves us and wants us to understand him from so many different perspectives. You see, 
Everyone sees things from their unique angle of how they've been trained. So here is Matthew, who is a, a Jew, was a tax collector named Levi, but was, was someone who was on the outside but understands all the things of the Jewish law and the understanding of the fulfillment that would come. And so he writes a gospel so that people would know with certainty that this Jesus was the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the Old Testament. You're, you're Messiah, you're king has arrived. And then, and then you go to a, a guy like Mark, and Mark is writing, in, in, he's writing to those in Rome, and he uses a style of writing that they were very much familiar with. It was like the kind of the, the, the drama that would, came from the Greek and Roman times, and it moved very quickly, and if you read it, it's, it's, it's pacing is very quick with words immediately, immediately, immediately. It's just constantly moving and ends abruptly, very much like a drama in that day where he was writing about Jesus, the hero, the suffering servant. And then John, who's writing years later, is writing at a time when, when, when there were rumors and stories and, and, and different understandings that were being told about Jesus. That, you know, Jesus was just a man. He was not, you know, the spirit came on him and left him. And, or, or that he was just a spirit and couldn't inhabit this fleshly body. And, and people began to have these kind of different thoughts about him. So John wants to make it very clear, the most theological of all of them. And he wants people to know that, that Jesus is the unique and only Son of God who's come from the Father, who is the divine Son of God. But Luke, Luke has a different intention. He writes for everybody and everyone. He, he, he is writing with the specific purpose to tell people that this Jesus has come to be the Savior of the world, and especially of those on the outside looking in. He wants them to know that whoever you are, wherever you are, God has a plan for you, and he loves you, and he's here to rescue you and to, and to, to move in your life. And he comes looking for the outsiders. Luke shows that Jesus loves the lost, the misfit, the renegade, and the outcast. And for, for, for instance, if you didn't have the Gospel of Luke, if we didn't have this writing of Luke, we wouldn't have the story of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. We would not have the story of the, that prostitute who anoints Jesus, who is forgiven. We would not have the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the parable of the persistent widow, the rich man and poor Lazarus, the guy who's covered with all these sores, longing to eat the crumbs of the rich man's table. We wouldn't have the story of the wedding banquet where those who were invited, who were kind of expected to come, don't show up. And so then he makes an invitation to everyone on the outside and goes to the corners of the world in a sense and says, those of you who want to come in, come in. Only in Luke do we find stories of the shepherds, the lowlife of Bethlehem, or the, the, the ungrateful lepers which one returns healed. The dying thief on the cross are all found in Luke because his purpose and intent is to let everyone know that no matter where you are, if you feel you're on the outside, you can come in. Peterson in the Message Bible writes in the foreword to his uh, Gospel of Luke, in his paraphrase of it before it, he says, most of us most of the time feel left out misfits. We don't belong. Others seem to be so confident, sure of themselves, insiders who know the ropes. One of the ways to respond to this is to form our own club or maybe to join one that will have us. 
Here is at least one place where we are in and the others are out. Sadly, he writes, religion has a long history of doing just that, of reducing the huge mysteries of God to the respectability of club rules, of shrinking the vast human community to those who are in with God and those who are out with God. But with God, there are no outsiders, Luke tells us. Luke is the most vigorous champion of the outsider. As an outsider himself, Luke, the only Gentile in an all-Jewish New Testament cast of writers, shows how Jesus includes those who are typically treated as outsiders in the religious establishment. Women, common laborers like shepherds, the racially different like Samaritans, the poor and on. Luke will not let the God and those who are called to follow and serve him be reduced down to a club of in and outs. Luke tells a story. All of us who have found ourselves on the outside looking in on life with no hope of gaining entrance now find the doors wide open, found and welcomed by Jesus. And he begins the story of Jesus letting us know this simple truth, which we talk about so often and you see up on our screens. Everyone's welcome. Because we know nobody's perfect. And here's the great news. With God, anything's possible. So you begin in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 of the story. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel. Remember, Gabriel was showing up with Zechariah. And he sent to Nazareth to a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married. So she's not married yet, but there's this long betrothal period. Pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you are so highly favored the Lord's with you. And Mary was incredibly troubled by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So here you have this beginning of the story and, and it focuses on Mary. Mary's a peasant. She's not one of the healthy, you know, wealthy housewives of LA or Atlanta or whatever the story may be today. Um, she's only about 15 years of age. So she's just not old enough. She's not mature enough. And she's a girl. She's not a man in that religious culture. If you look at how Luke includes women in the vital part of God's plan, it's really kind of interesting. Just as you kind of look at the way he includes the poor and the rich and, 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 and he moves from um, the Gentile and, and the Jew. He also, even with women, he tells the story of Zechariah. You see this kind of parallel. And then he tells the story of Mary. Then he focuses on the temple when Jesus comes on Simeon. Then he focuses on Anna. He tells the story of the Roman centurion in a healing. And then he tells the story of the widow of Nain in a healing. You, just, you see this parallel going throughout. At a certain point, he tells the Good Samaritan story and then he tells a story right after of Martha and Mary serving and you get this kind of pattern because you you see Luke traveled with with Paul and he was very aware of of Paul's understanding because it was Paul was going to those who were on the outside who were outside of Israel and he was going and he was sharing with people very clearly there is no slave or free there is no male or female uh, there is no Jew nor Greek And and he probably heard that message many 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 times and it really related to Luke Because he himself was a Gentile, a non-Jew by birth. And so if you go to verse 30, it's interesting. As he continues, he says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He'll be great and called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. It was the hope of Israel, but it was the hope of the world. Jesus is, is the name given, which is the Greek name for the Hebrew name Yeshua. He would have probably been known more by that name Yeshua, which comes from the word Joshua. 
And in the Old Testament, Joshua is the one who followed Moses and, and brought the children of Israel into the land of promise. And in a real sense, you hear this name, Yeshua. So Joshua meant God saves. And in, in, in Joshua, you see him coming into the promised land. And, and what, what Luke is trying to make very clear here is you have another Yeshua who is named God saves. Bringing people into the very presence of God, those who are on the outside coming in. I uh, was uh, noticed this week um, that 52 years ago, there was a, a production called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know, it first aired on a Sunday, December 6, 1964, on NBC. And that was hard for me as a kid, because I grew up in a church tradition where you were in church on Sunday nights, so I never got to see that as a kid. Anybody else know what I mean there? But here's what's kind of interesting. It has been telecast every year since 1964, making it the longest-running Christmas TV special in history. And the, and the story is basically about an outsider. Rudolph is born with a glowing red nose. Anybody know this story? And there's some who don't. I found that out last service. Santa tells Rudolph's father, Donner, who is the lead reindeer, that he will not allow Rudolph to be in the sleigh team and not to go to the reindeer games, which would be coming up. And so that's not something, you know, Donner's so excited about. And, you know, like any parent, so they decide we're going to have to do something because we want to send them to the reindeer today. And they come to the great idea, and that is they're going to make this little thing that covers his nose, right? And they put it on his nose. They, they send him to the reindeer games. And Rudolph is doing incredibly well at the reindeer games. He's learning how to fly. Comet's his coach. His nose is covered. But yet, when you listen to him, his voice all sounds like he's got a cold, right? And, and like any good story, at a certain point, he has a love interest. Clarice comes along. And he is so admires her. And his affection inspires him to fly higher and more artfully than all his peers. Because love does wonders, right? Yes, amen. <laughs> and, and it would happen that during some horseplay, or maybe you could call it deer play, um, the cover on Rudolph's nose inadvertently gets knocked off, and even a couple of his buddies begin to ridicule him, and so does everyone else, and they all come down on him, and Comet, his teacher, who is so enthralled with his flying abilities now, says, you gotta go, kicks him out. But Clarice stands by his side. All the other young bucks are ridiculing. Here's Clarice, still in love, trying to comfort Rudolph. They sing, there's always tomorrow. And then the final blow occurs. Clarice's father shows up and says, you can't be with Rudolph. And forbids her to hang around with Rudolph. Well, that's just too much. Rudolph flees to the forest. And, and I love this part because on his way in the forest, he meets a guy named Hermie. Remember Hermie? Hermie the elf. Hermie the elf was really into dentistry and not into toy making. So he's out of the, out the village. I, I, was, I was thinking about the story, I'm thinking, this is a pretty dysfunctional little town that Santa has here. <laughs> Think about it. And, and, and not only that, here you get this guy Santa who's looking at this list all the time, going and trying to figure out who's naughty and nice and who's going to measure up so they can kick him out. Well, as they run away, they meet this guy, Yukon, Cornelius the Yukon, and who's this great prospector. He calls himself the greatest prospector of the North who has never found any metal. And they all go to the island of, what is it? Misfit Toys. All the idiosyncrasies. And that's exactly who Luke is writing to. 
the kind of people who just don't seem, you know what, I'm not the religious fitting in. I just, I, I don't get it. I just don't fit into God's plans. I'm like a Rudolph or Hermie or a Yukon. I've been living my life on the island of misfit people. And Jesus, we're told, as Luke tells us in verse 34, that Mary asks the angel when she's told about the fact that this Jesus who saves and comes to the, to the island of misfit toys, to those who are on the outside looking in, her response is, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, that's a really good question because it was the same kind of question that was asked by uh, Zechariah, right? But Zechariah asked it out of a different place. Zechariah wasn't asking it in the way that Mary was asking it. Here's a guy who should have known and had all the understanding, and his response was kind of like, I don't believe it, prove it to me. But here's Mary coming from a different place. See, God doesn't have a problem with questions. God doesn't have a problem even with doubts. God is the kind of God who, 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 who really wants to help us grow in faith. And so if you're in a place where you're doubting, it's one thing to say, you prove it to me, God. It's another thing to say, God, I don't quite get it. I don't understand it. And that's where Mary's at. Mary's just going, I, I don't quite understand how this is going to happen. Let's face it. I'm a virgin. And so... The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's a great word right there. I want to, we're going to look at that for a moment. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who is said to be unable to conceive, the barren one, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. What a wonderful promise. But the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The word overshadow is really this idea of hovering over or brooding over. And if you um, think about it, if you go back to Genesis, and this may be new for you, but you go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it's the same idea, the same word. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the deep, the surface of the deep. So you have this kind of chaotic place, and, and it says, and the Spirit of God, was hovering over this. He was brooding over it. The Spirit of God was over these waters, enveloping it, and from it, God spoke, and life just was given birth. Now, the Greek word is this word episkiazo, which you're going to probably tell everybody when you get out of here, but it's a Greek word that is, it's the exact same word that, that, that is used in, in Luke chapter 9. So Luke goes a little bit later, and at the transfiguration, when Jesus goes to the top of the mountain, he takes away with him three people, G, uh, Peter, James, and John, and they're with him, and it says that a cloud enveloped him, overshadowed him. There was this sense of the presence of God, the glory of God. And the picture you get there also harkens back to the Old Testament, so that when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, they were led by a what? A cloud that overshadowed them was full of God's glory. It was giving life. And, and so here's Jesus, and they're standing, and they're overwhelmed by this cloud of glory, which is enveloping and overshadowing. And it's the same word that is used a little bit later that Luke uses in his second book called Acts. And here in Acts chapter 5, in verse um, 15... Luke tells us that God was doing these incredibly supernatural, life-giving, birthing kind of things. This God 
called Jesus, Yeshua, who loves to save, who loves to save people on the outside, who loves to save people who just come and want to somehow, can I just be in your presence? Can I just get close to you? Peter is walking along and people are putting their ill and their sick and, and, and others along the road, hoping that in some way this person where they have seen this, this Jesus working through him to, to bring healing and health and life and saving power, that they would just hope that his shadow would would fall upon them and, and would envelop them, would in that sense be like this glory would, would emanate from him and people were healed, we're told. That same word. And here's Mary. And, and she goes, oh, I get it. I don't need Joseph for another man. I don't really fully understand it, but if this same God who hovered over the formless surface of the deep and brought forth life and created is going to just hover over me, it's no problem. I, I can give birth. You'll, you'll make it happen, God. You know, one of the reasons I encourage you not to be on the outside, and then I talk to some of you who may feel like you're on the inside. You're on the inside one of the reasons you want to come to the outside in is because you want this presence of God hovering over your life. Think about it. You want this presence of God hovering over your marriage. You want this presence of God hovering over what you do where you work. You want this presence of God hovering over you as you walk through this life. And and Luke tells us you don't need to be on the outside because God wants to bring you into the very intimate presence of relationship with him on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. And so... I love Mary's response. You may feel on the outside, or you may feel like you've been on the inside in your own strength, which is really being on the outside. But here's the great words for a person on the outside, is all your heart needs to say. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Would you do what you've promised? Would you do and hover over me and and, and allow for me to experience what you have promised, which is your forgiveness and your life and your presence? Because Jesus isn't looking for another club where those on the outside just come to the inside and then create another sense of their own sense of being in. He is, Jesus is seeking to create a club where those on the outside serve those who are on the outside. The reason he brings you into his presence is so you can bring his presence out again. And he's establishing a community of kind of Marys who are servants who say, I, today, Lord, I want to be your servant. And he's looking for anyone who will say, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. 
Verse 39, it says, At that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting and the baby leaped in her womb, Elizabeth was filled with joy. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And I love this. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, think about it, you know, the baby in my womb is starting to kick. This baby was dancing with joy. See, because in, in little John, this baby is the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God hears the Spirit of Jesus as, as, as Mary's coming, and she's conceived. They're just like, this is so exciting. What I have promised, and with a gift I can't wait. To, you ever given a gift, you just can't wait to give it to them? That's what's going on. That's what's happening when, when you see this baby leaping and, and, and excited. And Mary's blessed because it, we're told she believed. She just trusted. And the moment the angel announced the message, she just said, okay. And here's what I think is interesting. She said, Jesus, Father, I will serve you, even though if it means being misunderstood, if it means that I'll be ridiculed, it means that people will humiliate me. I mean, think about it. Her path to serve wasn't easy. In fact, her path to serve wasn't easy because it meant a sacrifice of her plans. I'm sure she was thinking about a wedding and, and what life would look like and how things, and, and it was nothing like she had imagined. I'm, I'm sure not only was it that her plans and the sacrifice that took place there, but just think about the courage that she had to have within herself to go before Joseph, who was probably about 18, she's about 15, and she had to tell him, guess what, I'm pregnant. You ever had to give a person a hard message? But see, servants do what they're asked to do, and they go in the courage of the Lord. And maybe that God's asking you to say something to someone, or God is saying, you know, it's time to stand up for a boundary, because servants say, I'm your servant, Lord, and I'm doing this not for me, I'm doing it, because some of you just need to know that you're doing it because God says it's the right thing to do. It means hardship. Did you know it meant hardship, physical hardship? It meant that she had to go 26 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem when she was about eight plus months pregnant. Anybody want to sign up for that? By, by foot, walking. And Mary burst into song, which we traditionally call the Magnificat. Because in the opening um, words in the Latin Vulgate, it starts out by saying, um, glorify the Lord, O my soul. It starts out with that word, which is that Latin word, magnific. And here she says, Mary said, verse 46, my soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And I want you to note, everything after that, from verse 48 on, is kind of a, here's why I am so excited. For he has been mindful, he never forgets the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, and he scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he lifts up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sends the rich away empty. He's helped the servant Israel, remembering, never forgetting to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, because that's what he promises to do, because that's who he is. God is Jesus, Yeshua, who is God saves, because that's what he loves to do. He loves to come in and rescue and to take you from here and bring you to where you need to be. 
It's obvious Mary knew God's word because this song that she sings here at the end is very parallels very closely to Hannah's song. Hannah in the Old Testament who is longing and praying and asking for a child who eventually has Samuel has this burst of joy and excitement so in the same way. Mary must have been praying and must have been meditating on that word and, and, and as a result began to just cry out and, and praise to God. It's a song about our God who hears the cry of the broken and the repeated chorus throughout this song is to the humble, hungry, and hopeless. God extends his mercy and his grace and his love. Even if you feel on the outside God loves you, this is what Mary is celebrating in her song. There's a favorite scene in a movie that I enjoy. It's, it's really rather silly movie. In fact, you could call it dumb or even dumber. But... Um, This guy, Lloyd, is hoping that this girl, Mary, who is beautiful and way out of his league, will basically have eyes for him. And uh, at one point in the movie, she's in front of him, and he's just enthralled with her, and he says, Mary, I like you. I like you a lot. And she's smiling at him uncomfortably. And he goes, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to give, me to it, give it to me straight out, flat out. I, I, I want your honest answer. And, and he's so incredibly nervous, and he's always botching up his thoughts and lines, and he says, and he, he continues, and he says, what do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? And she very tactfully says, well, Lloyd, it's difficult to say you really don't. And he just interrupts and goes, hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way to see you, Mary. At least you can do his level with me. What are my chances? And Mary, without any hesitation, says, not good. <laughs> and, and Lloyd goes, you mean not good like in one out of a hundred? She pauses just a little bit and says, I'd say more like one out of a million. And Lloyd pulls his head back. You can tell he's a bit confused. He's processing, he's thinking, and she's looking at him. And all of a sudden, this big smile comes over his face. And he, he says, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> yeah. Luke is making it incredibly clear in this narrative what Mary is affirming in her song that any heart longing for, wanting to know, willing to humbly trust and eager to serve God can know with certainty that there's more than a chance. The odds are always in your favor because you have to understand the message of the gospel and of Luke is it is not based on what you can do. It's not based on whether you feel God loves you. It's not based on anything in you in the amount of love that you can give towards him. It's not based on the fact that if you could be a Pharisee and you could live a really good life or you could be really religious and live a really good life, it's not based on anything but the fact that God loves you so much that he will provide not only forgiveness through the cross through Jesus who was born and raised and died and resurrected but he loves you so much he wants to enter your life right now and it's not based on what you do you may have blown it last night but all you're called to do in this life is to say God I am sorry I will never be on the outside with you because you are the one through your heart who has called me to live inside with you 
And the lie of Satan is always to get us to think that somehow it's by our abilities what we can do and how we can do it. And the, and, and the word of God is always this. He comes in this incredible way and he says, guess what? I'd like to partner with you. I'd like to love you and through you begin to change your character. I'd like to partner with you. So that even if you're in your marriage, you may not be the greatest spouse or come from a really good home that taught you how to be a good parent or a good whatever. But I'll do it with you. And you might be kind of thinking like Zechariah, there's no way, prove it to me. Or you could be like Mary this morning, and you could be saying, God, I'd like to, I, whatever, I'll be your servant. You tell me, I'll just do it. The chances are really good that you can walk with God in a relationship that can transform your heart and life if you have the response that is just simply this. I'm your servant, God. I just want to cooperate with you. I just, want to, I just want to walk with you and do what you're asking me to do. With God, listen to this, you never, ever need to be on the outside. Luke makes it incredibly clear in these accounts, in this unbelievable story, which is credible, that he sent Jesus as the savior of the world of all people. And all you need to do is just open your heart and, and, it, and, and take a good look at yourself and say, God, I've blown it. I know I've sinned. I know I need you. Would you let me be your servant? He goes, oh, yeah. It's been in my heart all along. A few weeks ago, I was at the women's Christmas event serving um, and... I was upstairs listening to the stories, and I heard a number of stories, and one of them was from Heather. And so I just asked Heather if she'd come and share her story because it just, I thought, was so powerful and good for us to hear how God works in people's lives and, and how he moves and, and, um, and how he brought you to a place from outside in. So thank you, Heather. Good morning. So as many of you know, or some of you know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I didn't go to church, learn all the Sunday school Bible songs, learn all about the Bible, all that warm, fuzzy Christian family perfect stuff. It wasn't that I was a bad person. It wasn't that I was a bad person or anything, rough around the edges perhaps. It's just I didn't grow up going to church like you did. I only went to church for weddings and funeral potatoes. It's the best part about a funeral, right? I had a pretty good idea that going to church would probably make me a better person, make my life better. But church was always very intimidating, and it was full of perfect people. I definitely was not perfect or good enough to attend church. Nor could I sing hymns, nor could I sing at all. Plus, I knew very little about the Bible or the people in it. It was more stories than anything for me. The Bible was Christmas songs, Madonna sang about God, rockers of the 80s, and country music. My real dad had divorced my mom when I was one, and he was never really a part of my life. He made his way back into my life when I was younger, and at the age of eight, he managed to get me baptized, and then he was gone again. And I can honestly tell you, 
that that abandonment left an absolute sense of worthlessness in my life, left me empty. But despite that, I was always a good kid, a smart kid, got good grades, played multiple sports. I was involved in school, in the community, always had a boyfriend, dated tons of friends, invited to all the parties. I was the complete package, so to speak. But being the life of the party and the complete package left me pretty empty and pretty lonely inside. I was always looking for true love, somewhere, anywhere, and definitely in all the wrong places. But I finally got married when I was 33. My husband and I knew we wanted to start a family right away. And he said, we should find a church so the kids would have a foundation in Jesus and know who Jesus is. I said, seriously? The guy who had abandoned and left the church of his youth wanted nothing to do with it, actually wanted to go back to church, and he wanted me to go with him? I definitely was not perfect enough or good enough to go to church. We did start attending, though, this non-denominational church down the road from our house in Park City, Utah, and I'll never forget the day, Sunday, October 5th, 2003. We walked through those doors, and the Christian music was playing, and Pastor Gordy was giving his message, and I can tell you it was incredible. I'd never heard anything like it in my life. And it was like Gordy was standing right there talking to me, right to me. He was speaking to my husband and me, and I just, it's clear as day. I remember it clear as day. And as we keep going, I'm like, this is so amazing, and this is so awesome. And honey, John, did you hear that? He said, oh yeah, I heard that. I've heard all of it. I've been going to church. I went to church as a kid. I heard all of it, and, and it's not for me. He obviously wasn't as gung-ho as I was because I'm still coming to church. After two years, though, I felt this overwhelming sense of urgency that I wanted to be rebaptized. So I took the plunge, so to speak. And 10 years ago, this past August, I was baptized while I was pregnant with my daughter, Autumn. After being baptized, though, life was still not working out. You know, we had two small children, a brand new business during the economy downturn, having to start working multiple jobs just to make things work and ends meet. We were flat broke regardless of the hours that my husband and I put in. And I found myself, I took it personally, I found myself in such a deep depression, deep despair, I can call it absolute darkness. It was awful, absolutely awful. And I just wanted all of it to go away. The house, the kids, the jobs, leave it all, I'm out of here. But then we started attending a new church, a different church, just down the other road in Park City, Utah. And I took my first Bible study. A woman after God's own heart. And that is when everything started coming together. Delving into scripture learning scripture, praying for the Holy Spirit to guide me, surrounded by godly women. Everything just clicked. There was this light went on, and it was almost like there was a spotlight on me. God's word was sinking in. It was coming to me. It was incredible. Funny how all of that verse memorization and scripture reading and prayer 
it really works. If we actually do it, if we buy that lottery ticket, sometimes we can win. I couldn't get enough of God's word and what actually happened to me. I was starving. I was so hungry for the word that I became fully enamored with him. I started taking more Bible studies. I started facilitating Bible studies. I just became so enamored with him. I couldn't get enough. In trusting God, Jerry Bridges writes, if we are seeking him, it is because he is seeking us. Well, he must have been chasing me down because I could not get enough. God was hunting me down. And that feeling that I wasn't worth much, that I wasn't perfect or good enough to come to church, well, you know what? Jesus, he died for me. He thought I was worth dying for. That was the bottom line. I was good enough for him. The takeaway from all the studies, the amazing Christian music, the mentors, the amazing messages from the various pastors, is that I love Jesus. And you know what? Most importantly, he loves me. He lights up my life, and I have finally found my true love. 47 years old, and I came to Christ 13 years ago. I'm not alone anymore. I don't have to keep looking and searching and and feeling that anxiety and that depression and that despair and that sense of failure. I've been through some personal struggles, and I've definitely made some poor choices. I've had a lot of stuff in my past that I've had to work through, and it hasn't been pretty. It hasn't been easy. But he makes me feel worth something He fills me with so much hope and confidence and promise of a future. I've never had that before. My life before the full understanding and appreciation of who Jesus is, is nothing like the Heather you see here today. I get so excited and happy, and it doesn't seem like it right now because I get emotional too, but when I think or speak of him and when I have the opportunity to speak to non-believers— And those who have just never grown up going to church on Sunday mornings, I got to watch Rudolph the Reindeer on Sunday nights, just so you know. (laughs) But when I get to talk to someone about God and about Jesus and the Holy Spirit just embracing you, I can't contain myself a lot of times, and some of you know that, but... It's very exciting for me, and I want all of you to be excited too. My friends and coworkers back home in Utah, and my huge, I have a huge, I come from a huge, huge family, non-believing family back in California, they have seen the changes in me. They know I've changed. They know my life has changed, my heart has changed. They've seen the change in my children, my husband. They know it's Jesus. They like the new me. And so I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I actually feel pretty blessed about that sometimes. Well, a lot of times, all the time. Because I don't take my life for granted. I don't take my salvation for granted. I haven't been there, done that. I'm like in the thick of things right now, and I absolutely love it. And I'm happy to be where I am now. God has me where he wants me now. All those woulda, shouldas, couldas, I wish I didn't done that, I wish, you know, that stuff, that's, that's working away, but that's the despair that kept me down for so many years. And, and I can work through that, and I'm fresh, and I'm seeing things from a fresh, fresh, clean slate. He's given me a new leash on life that I never thought I could have before. 
I am witnessing life changes in my family back home, and all I can say is it's a miracle. It is totally God working. It is all him. And just to think, to humble myself and think that I could possibly be a catalyst to be getting that going is just awesome. Being a presence around my family who have never, ever been believers, it's, you know, it's stories, it's whatever, it's a book. And just seeing the changes in them is really, really awesome, awesome stuff. And on my refrigerator is a postcard that says, Shine as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. I've been trying to think where I got that postcard. I have no idea. But I've had it for several years, and it's moved with me from Utah to Minnesota. And and I just look at that, and I go, you know what? I really want that prayer for my life. That is one thing that stands out in the middle of my refrigerator with all the magnets and all the postcards and, or, you know, Christmas cards and all that kind of fun stuff. But I want that to be a prayer for my life. I want to be a light in someone's life, whether I can be the inspiration, the motivator, that catalyst. And I don't, it doesn't have to be here at church, obviously. It can be the grocery line or at, at where I work. Every day I get to interact with people. And if I can just be that little click, that little glimpse of hope, that seed, then I want that. I want to be the light in someone's life. And I hope I can be a light in yours. And I hope I'm a light in someone else's. So Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And I think the three months were important because it was around that time she started to show. And I think it's probably around that time that she may have even spoke to Joseph and had the courage to do so. But the theme of her life was, I am the Lord's servant. I want to be a light. I want to do whatever you want me to do, God. And there are more Heathers out there. And I just encourage us as a body to take a few minutes to think about serving others. What does it mean to be the Lord's servant this time of year, I know it's so busy, and your head is probably filled with all that you have to do. Uh, you probably move into survival mode and then become very self-focused, and there are people around you who are in darkness, who are in need, like Heather. There are people in the cubicle or the office right next to you, people you maybe interact with online and the phone that you're talking to who are struggling. There are people all around you who are hurting with difficult challenges, and God says, Part of the reason you have come in is so that you can also go out and and touch other people. And this is the gift of giving, the season of giving gifts. And so I'm going to ask you just to think in your heart, what would it mean if you said, I'm the Lord's servant? Three things I just want you to think about. One is, would you make these kind of commitments? Make the commitment that making serving others a priority every day. I don't think that Mary's was just a response to what was said. I think when she said, I am the Lord's servant, it was a part of a growing character in her heart that said, God, however you want to use me, I want to serve you. So the first thing I just want you to think about in this season, I know there's lots going on, but what if you woke up in the morning and said, I'm going to make serving others a priority today. I am your servant, Lord. And then to do what Mary also did and that's to be do, willing to do whatever needs to be done that's what servants do they do whatever they're told to do Mary ended up having to change the plans and, and had to 
go that hard road and, and, and walk that distance. Mary ended up feeling some ridicule. It was probably tough at times to live out what it meant to serve and making that a priority and especially saying, I'll do whatever you need me to do. When you're thinking about that, what does it mean as you say, I'm the Lord's servant? Serving will mean sometimes putting aside your plan, putting aside for a moment what needs to be done. Maybe stopping and courageously just saying, Let me, can I just, would you mind if I pray for you right now? Or maybe just say, I'm going to pray for you. I, however it is, what does it mean to say that you'll be willing to do whatever is needed? And then the thing to remember in all this is to remember who and whose you are, because that's the key thing here. She said, I am the Lord's servant. Because I got to tell you, in the midst of serving other people, at times it's really difficult because you start focusing on them and the whatever, they're not responding, whatever. It, what's really important here is the word Lord. He tells you, and then you just do it, no matter what the result or outcome will be. So I'm going to ask us, we're going to stand and we're going to sing this song, Joy to the World. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you to take a moment and just to open your heart before the Lord. And if you, and God, Spirit has been speaking to you and you know that you have been on the outside, maybe it's due to the fact you've never stepped in and you've never made that, that statement of faith that says, Jesus, I'm here. My life is to serve you. Forgive me for not um, serving you with my life. But today, today, I'm, I'm going to serve you. Or maybe you've been staying on the outside because you've felt shame or, or whatever you've done. And today, it's a matter just to say, I'm, I'm going to serve you with my life. And for some, many of us, it may be an opportunity to say, you know, it is busy, but what's more important is to be about God's busyness. And one of those things is to say, I'm going to be your servant and make this a priority, and I will do whatever you need me to do. What does that look like? Let's just bow our head. Father, just between you and the Lord right now, however he might be speaking to you, however he might be knocking on your own heart's door. May you just respond to him and say, I am your servant, Lord. You will find no greater joy than seeing God work through you. Than having the hovering presence of God move around you. So let's sing this together. Joy to the world. Let's be joy to the world. The Lord's joy to the world. Let's sing it.